Good evening, Sojourners. We're here by the fire with Meg Smith, author of the short story collection, The Plague Confessor. Hey, Meg. Hi, thank you for having me. And, and the fire is lovely. Uh, the, the crackling <laughs> is Oh, <very> the crackling. <laughs> and thank you, thank you for having me. Um, and so you have a, uh, the short story collection. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. Sure. The Plague Confessor is my first published short story collection. Um, I've been writing fiction and poetry for a long time. I would say I, I really got my start about 30 years ago in kind of the, the golden age of um, indie publishing um, between the world of mainstream publishing and, and right before everything made the great leap forward to the net. And so The Plague Confessor represents some of those early stories that were published in uh, different magazines and publications from uh, that time back in the 90s. Um, and also um, more um, current works that I've written that have been published in some of our uh, more current publications. So it definitely spans some different places and times and uh, different places for me and my journey as a writer as well. Hmm. Nice. Is there anything uh, new in there or is it all things that have been published elsewhere? Yes, there are some new things um, as well as some recently published things. I, I really aim to put together a nice span for the reader, including some first glimpses into something new. And I thought that was important, especially because I think having stories from different points in my writing career might also help to, um, to add some variety. Um, I, I really wanted to give the reader as good and varied experience and enjoyable read as I could. It does seem um, you you cover several subgenres in these stories. Um, there's there's some body horror in a Boy with Pretty Eyes. I'm thinking initially, and some humor in there as well. Um, some some more cinematic kind of uh, pieces too. Sure. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, you're you're saying that reminds me. I, I often uh, think of when Stephen King talked about what he liked to call skull cinema. That if you could create a really good image for the reader to cast into their own minds, you know, to see. I think that's a worthy goal. Nice. Do you, uh, I know it's, it's horrible to pick, to pick among your children. I'm a writer <laughs> as well. Uh, but um, if you had to uh, pick a favorite of these uh, stories, uh, which one would you go with? Well, I think that's a totally fair question. Uh, and writing can be like your children, um, except that they don't cry or fight about broccoli or things like that. <laughs> Um, uh, my my stories fight about broccoli all the time. <laughs> Actually, having said that, a broccoli fight might not be a bad premise. Um, I think that these stories represent different things to me, and I probably have favorites among them. Um, the title story, The Plague Confessor, I actually began writing about two years ago. And um, I've always been interested in epidemiology and public health. Um, I've written about that a lot as a journalist. And uh, so I started delving a little bit into this, the so-called Black Plague of um, late medieval Europe. And um, two, well, two years after I, I started that story and, and embarked on writing that story, we find ourselves in, in a very real modern day um, pandemic. And so for me, I think I felt like the, the story um, had some poignancy. And, and I am proud, quite honestly, of the um, I, I did do quite a bit of research to make sure that the story historically rang true, as well as appealing to a modern reader. And um, I would say, an, actually, another another story um, with a somewhat historical nature 
um, in there is Kites, which actually was one of the first stories that I had published in, in a magazine. And it was written um, in the aftermath of the, the Bosnian War and the Bosnian genocide. And, and it takes its inspiration from that. And um, although it reflects something uh, much more personal in that to me, I, I felt like I wanted to work really hard to still honor um, the people who actually lived through those horrors, um, as well as reflecting something personal. And, um, and again, I, I tried to honor um, that setting by researching it as well as I could. So those are, those are two stories that um, I certainly feel proud to present. I tried to bring out something different in all of them, but that hopefully um, the reader will enjoy. But to answer to your question, I think those are, those are two that for me, I feel like um, I had an opportunity to create a, a really personal signature. And, uh, and hopefully I've fulfilled that goal. We could probably get uh, distracted talking about uh, the Black Death for quite some time. I, uh, I did a, a couple of papers on that back in my literature classes in graduate school, talking about beauty and the plague, I believe, was, uh, was the uh, topic of the, uh, of the paper, where I uh, got to see how um, the connections between the those ideals of beauty at the time and how the ugliness of the plague was more a reflection on your your goodness as a person. Uh, because if you were rendered ugly by the plague, then obviously you weren't a good person anymore. There was something wrong with you. You were being judged by God. But yours kind of goes there uh, with the, the Plague Confessor short story here. I won't give away too much, but uh, there are those, um, there are characters in here whose stereotypes are being played against, I guess. Well, um, in the Plague Confessor, um, I became intrigued by, by a couple of things, one of which was that um, when, the, when the medieval plague that we think of as the Black Plague unfolds, um, the political and, and religious landscape of Europe is is in um, quite a bit of turmoil. And um, even though it's also a time where it, there had been um, relatively great prosperity, there also was trouble brewing, as it were. Uh, among other things, the, the papacy had um, decided to take up residence in Avignon in France, away from its traditional home in Rome. And uh, when the Black Plague came and priests went out to do what Catholic priests did in those days to administer last rites and so forth. Um, well, then the, the priests and the clergy, who were, in effect, frontline workers in their time, of course, began to die because they were exposed to the plague. And so the Pope eventually issues a decree that, well, really anybody can, can give um, or listen to a person's last confession to um, absolve them of their sins before they die. Um, which traditionally, and, and I am Catholic and have been raised as a Catholic, that's a kind of an important notion traditionally. Well, um, and the Pope basically said, if you can't find an, another layperson to do it, well, then even a woman can give confession. Um, oh, gasp. Gasp, <laughs> the horror. So, um, so I think that um, somewhat gives the, to me, I thought, well, that somewhat gives the lie to what I think is sometimes a, a, an oversimplified view of gender roles and class and so forth in, in the Middle Ages. Um, so I began to think about, well, as, as a woman, who's really going to be out and about at this time? 
And that's where I came upon the idea of, of someone who had, was widowed and, and basically forced into financial hardship, who was in fact a prostitute. And she is the one who basically is, is brave enough to take on the role of saying, all right, I'll go out and listen to people's confessions. This is, um, you know, this is an, an important thing. And the story is told from the standpoint of an observer, a middle-class legal clerk who's um, watching all of these, uh, watching uh, this drama unfold in front of him, even as he, like everyone else, is trying to stay alive. And I found it interesting, too, mm-hmm. that, uh, of course, she chooses to do that. And it's, you know, I mean, she's already in a dangerous profession. It's not really extending herself that much further to uh, go and be around all of these uh, people who are sick, who are uh, toward the end. Well, yeah, that's that's definitely a valid point. She's already in a, in a profession that is um, that incurs some risk to it, um, health-wise and and in every way. So, so yeah, it seemed to me like that that to your point that that really wasn't an unnatural progression to to think of um, this person ending up being the plague confessor. That kind of speaks to some of your interests. Uh, do you, when you start writing a story, you you talked about doing a lot of research uh, into these, particularly. Uh, into uh, the plague confessor and kites because of their historical context. But do you have an ending in mind when you're writing? What's your um, what's your vision ha- of a short story when it first comes to you? Well, I think it's it's different with almost every short story, and I think. Um, Maybe anyone who's a writer of of, uh, of short fiction will will agree with me. I, I do have many times where a wonderful beginning <laughs> comes to me, or feels wonderful as I as I'm writing it, and and I will get to a cer- certain point, and I will say, well, this story really needs to go somewhere if it's if, and, and and I need to take it beyond where it is. And I have had the occasion of taking a story that's maybe a third or or part way through and uh, putting it back in the virtual drawer, as it were, and revisiting it sometime later when by happenstance or perhaps something that I've seen or observed or experienced, or just simply uh, putting some distance on the manuscript helps me to see the way forward to the end of the story. And and yes, there are other times when uh, the, the, the beginning, middle, and end seems to kind of logically come together in, in one piece. And of course, that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and the rest is, uh, is, is, is nailing down details, characters, places that will, will make the story do the work. Um, cool. I have no idea what I was just about to say. <laughs> would you, would you uh, like me to read from the, from the story? Would this be a good time? Well, this is the Gothic Podcast. Uh, we do like spooky things, so I hope you've chosen a spooky one to read from. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, see where the let's see where process has brought you in okay. uh, one of your stories. Okay, great. Yes, I'd be glad to. So, I'm going to read from um, one of the stories. In fact, that you referenced early on, it's called "A Boy with Pretty Eyes." And this story has its start actually back in the mid '90s. And it is inspired um, by a real-life friend of mine, Turbo Tom McKittrick, who at that time um, was a professional freak artist. And um, not unlike the, the circus freaks of, of the olden days, but um, he would do all kinds of astonishing things, including eating glass and, and pounding a nail in, into the side of his face. It was, it was quite entertaining, but not for the meek of heart. 
So he and I would sometimes talk about different, I think, sort of uh, obscure facets of anatomy. And that's what gave me the idea for this story um, about a a young, uh, sort of awkward uh, elementary school boy who discovers he has uh, these strange powers over his own, his own uh, corpus humanus, as it were. So um, this is from A Boy with Pretty Eyes, and it's dedicated to my friend, Turbo Tom McKidrick. There's a lot of play with the muscles that hold the eyeball, Ben said, in that knowing tone of voice that had long ago alienated him from most of his fifth grade class. Here, during the class science demonstration projects, he wasn't about to win them back. He had decided on this course of action initially because it seemed less likely to get him beat up than did showing his homeroom how an abacus works. He reached into the front pocket of his jeans, which sagged on him, and he pulled out a butter knife. Before the teacher could stop him, he wedged the knife's spreader end between his lower eyelid and one of the dark brown eyes, which his grandmother had said would always be his only redeeming features. One of those two redeeming features was now a a free-floating globe, balanced on the edge of the knife's blunt edge. The it was only then that the teacher, Mrs. Burston, broke from her stupefying horror and leapt up from her desk to escort Ben to the nurse's office. Inches off her chair, however, she froze once again, as if Ben's disensconced miracle of sight had shot a paralyzing beam through her. She thumped back onto her chair and gazed at him, her face shiny, her mouth open but petrified, and something between shock and ardor in her eyes. Vaguely, she heard gasps, cries, and perhaps the thud of someone fainting. And then applause from the rows of spellbound students. Ben rather unceremoniously popped his eyeball back into his socket, as if pocketing a marble, and made a campy bow before returning to his seat. The display was disgusting, but effective. Ben had won the day. Nice. And uh, and yeah, that's that's not the least of the things that, that Ben can do. It's a uh, oh, it's one of my favorite stories, actually. Uh, oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. And it was a fun one to write too, because uh, I think I think most of us perhaps have some memory of not in school of not quite fitting in, and maybe even a, a fantasy of boy, it'd be great to have some kind of cool power that would. Uh, would make people respect me more. I don't think that's an uncommon experience in, in those grade school days. So, um, so I thought, one, why not? <laughs> that one is rather a rather strange one to be to be wishing for. But uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, what uh, what kind of uh, things did you read as a child? Assuming you were a reader. Sure, I I really loved to read as a child and. I love to write and draw, and I had parents that were um, really encouraging of all those things, and there were a lot of books in our house, and also uh, my father in particular was a really big fan of going to book sales and yard sales and and flea markets and the like, so we also uh, sometimes had some very interesting, uh, I would say, vintage editions of, of different books of Greek mythology and world folk tales. My mother is from Ireland, and uh, my father is from uh, the what was then mostly Irish enclave of Charlestown in Boston. And so storytelling is a big part of our cultural tradition. I like to read, in, in some things I think what a lot of kids were reading at that time, um, those little golden books mm-hmm. uh, were with the wonderful illustrations. Um, I loved fairy tales. I still do. 
I loved reading from the uh, A Thousand and One Nights. Um, I was quite intrigued actually with, uh, with the A Thousand and One Nights, or sometimes called the Arabian Nights, although I think they're actually more um, Persian in origin. And I liked reading, as I got a little bit older, um, I liked to read, um, I actually read uh, The War of the Worlds when I was 10. I remember that was one of my favorite book reports <laughs> to do. And um, when I was 14, um, a wonderful friend of mine, uh, who's now a, a very accomplished writer in her own right, gave me a contemporary edition of Dracula, Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. And, and that was when the, the Frank Langella movie was out. So Frank Langella was on the cover, but the novel was the original novel. And so I think when I look back, um, and I remember when I was 13, I read Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. So I think that horror and, and science fiction and, and uh, gothic fiction have, uh, have been uh, good friends to me from the beginning. <laughs> I remember um, reading Bullfinch's mythology on a fairly regular basis. Um, I believe what I was, uh, my big book when I was 10 was I had finally gotten, as I'd asked for um, over and over, the... Um, novelization of Star Wars. I still have that book, um, and it's not nearly as large as I remember it being when I was when I was that young. <laughs> but you mentioned fairy tales. Um, did you, at that time, know the darker versions of them, or was it the more, the glossier uh, versions of fairy tales? Um, I think I came across both, because we had, we had books that were, were clearly adaptations for children. And we also had, uh, I, again, partly, I think, because of my family's propensity for scavenging for interesting and obscure books, I think that we had some that had sort of were more true to the original origins. I actually remember being captivated by Little Red Riding Hood and having this odd sympathy for both the wolf and Red Riding Hood. <laughs> And um, and the wizard. We have that sympathy here on the uh, Gothic <laughs> podcast too. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so and and there are and there is in, in Irish mythology and, and folklore a great deal of stories that I think to the Western mind would would appear dark. Uh, we have, of course, the Banshee, uh, which sort of frightened and enthralled me as a child. And Dracula itself was written by um, an Irish writer, Bram Stoker. I stopped by his one of his houses in Dublin two years ago to uh, to pay my respects. And um, so I would say it's somewhat what was uh, in the air at the time and in our culture. And, and I would definitely give a great deal of credit to my cultural heritage as well. One of my great disappointments in life is that I was in Transylvania on a tour and we were supposed to be going to see the castle that inspired uh, Bram Stoker, uh, Bran Castle, or at least it's one of the... Uh, possible inspirations of, uh, uh, for Bram Stoker. And uh, the tour group that I was with messed up along the way, uh, delayed us, and uh, we made it there only in time to get pictures of it from the outside. It was too late to actually go on a tour of the castle itself because my tour mates had wanted to go to the mall instead. And so... I uh, I missed out on that, but it was uh, still, even from the outside, that imagery is so very evocative. And that was one of the things I wanted to get into when we started this podcast. We play a game uh, and we wanted it to be evocative of those gothic tropes of the 
the dark architecture, the looming sense of presence and and just weight of things beyond our knowledge, our everyday awareness out there surrounding us all the time. Sure. Uh, well, as, as uh, Bram Stoker says in the novel Dracula, there are such things. <laughs> We're actually going to be delving into some fairy tale stories in an upcoming season. Not this next one. Sojourners, nope, sorry, you don't get that quite yet. But uh, um, yeah, all those things that that teased us as children, we like to get into and, and dig around for their darker parts here too, as it appears you have done in a few cases in your short stories. Well, thank you. I will definitely take that as... as <laughs> <laughs> So, moving on from that, then, um, uh, reading, movies, TV, uh, what's a guilty pleasure that you have when you're not writing? A guilty pleasure. Let me think of one that doesn't involve calories. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, it can certainly um, involve calories. It's <laughs> well, I sometimes, I, I, as, as I'm kind of trolling about on social media, um, I do sometimes find myself looking at celebrity gossip. I, I will be quite honest about that. Um, I, <laughs> I think that, um, quite honestly, I feel blessed to, to live in kind of a, a really rich environment um, that has, honestly, n- not too much room for ever feeling like there's not enough to do. I'm also a, an oriental dancer, and um, I worked um, over the years, especially with my late husband, to incorporate our love of writing and literature into dance events. And um, in that way, we honored uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and and, um, also I created um, the Edgar Allan Poe Show, which um, actually honors Poe's presence here in Lowell, Mass., where I live. He came here, he presented a paper here. Uh, there's a lot of mystery and folklore surrounding Poe's visit to Lowell, but his uh, his passage here in the city um, is is part of the city's literary landscape, uh, along with my my dad, um, Lowell-born writer um, Jack Kerouac, author of On the Road, and I was um, along with my late husband on the board many years of Lowell celebrates Kerouac, so we produced a lot of events there too. And so I, I do like to perform. I, I like giving poetry readings. I like to, um, I like performing oriental dance has been a journey unto itself. And I would say maybe this does qualify as a guilty pleasure, but um, my, my husband and I now, we, we like to sing karaoke. And we're kind of sad that with the coronavirus, uh, one of the things that we can't really do anymore is go out <laughs> to sing 80s hair metal songs <laughs> with our friends. Yeah, it's a little bit more disturbing when that can be recorded um, on uh, Zoom uh, meetings or Zoom karaoke uh, nights. <laughs> yes, there's quarantine karaoke, which I, I found myself honestly so busy as, as a journalist, I haven't had time to indulge in that. Um, but I like to see my friends doing that. So does any of that uh, make its way into your stories? Yeah, I think it does. Because actually, um, I think that all of those things have in some form or another um, definitely influenced my writing. Um, being an oriental dancer and a journalist has allowed me to to travel um, to Turkey, to Egypt several times. And it's been a kind of a passport into the cultures of the Middle East and into the Islamic world. And um, I took some classes in Arabic as well. Um, I don't speak it super fluently, but, but I am able to speak it enough that I think 
uh, people in Egypt understood what I was doing, or at least applauded the attempt. <laughs> I lived in Mexico for four years, and I managed to be able to uh, tell the people at the restaurant what I wanted to eat and tell the taxi driver where I wanted to go. And that was about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I studied Spanish as well. In fact, for a long time, I, co I covered the Hispanic community, um, our local Latino community as a journalist. And, and again, that was kind of a, a passport into those cultures. And being able to, to do that and to be welcomed into someone's culture, that's a humbling thing. And for one for which I'm grateful. And I think it, it definitely um, has enriched me as, as a writer and just as a world citizen as well. So you you did some traveling then over um, in those areas. Um, what's a memory that, that stands out for you? Wow, so many memories. This may sound odd, but certainly when when someone has the has the fortunate opportunity to travel to Egypt, as I have, I, I've certainly been able to see some of the grand antiquities, you know, the pyramid, the Sphinx and and those are pretty awe-inspiring. But the memories that I really hold the closest to me are just of the friends that I've made and um, the people I met who were invariably kind and generous. And um, also, my late husband and I, when we would go travel somewhere, we, we had kind of a, a little game that we played between us. We would count the cats, all the cats that we saw. Um, well, in traveling through Egypt and, and also through um, Istanbul, Oh, I met a lot of cats and they uh, were just very plentiful and people would put out food for them. And in fact, recently, um, the resident cat of the Hagia Sophia church and, and mosque in Istanbul passed away in that. And that cat um, has many tributes being paid to it around the, the world. So certainly to, to go to these, these great places where, where history played out, to the, the Blue Mosque, to the Sultan's um, Topkapi Palace in, in Istanbul. Those, as I said, are pretty awe-inspiring. But the memories that I've really taken with me are just the shared friendships and moments of really getting to know one another as people, you know, across the bridges of different cultures. Did any of those cats, uh, cat stories uh, make it into When a Cat Went Missing, one of the stories in this collection? <laughs> I think that um, When a Cat Went Missing is a story that I really feel the imprint, if you will, of um, I'm a great animal lover. And ever since I, I was a small child, I've always had especially cats around me and I've rescued quite a few cats. And, um, and I feel a real poignancy for, you know, animals who are really dependent on us as human beings to give them kindness and nourishment and sustenance. And, uh, but there are, as unfortunately there are a lot of people, um, there are a lot of displaced animals in the world um, looking for a home. And I think the story when a cat went missing, I, I think that I was feeling many sort of collective voices speaking to me of the various maybe stray or homeless animals that have crossed my path and my efforts to help as best as I'm able to help. Mm, nice. Well, all right. Uh, where, uh, where can our listeners um, find you online? Sure. I have a website, megsmithwriter.com. And um, I'm also on Twitter at my uh, Twitter handle as it was at megsmith underscore writer. And I'm also at Facebook at facebook.com slash megsmithwriter. And The Plague Confessor is available on Amazon, as well as reaching out to me um, directly. Um, it's on Amazon, along with uh, the poetry books that were 
also published by Emu Books, which is the publisher of The Plague Confessor. I have four um, poetry books published through Emu Books. Um, Emu Books is headed by my friend, um, the writer and artist Eric Stanway, who um, is wonderfully talented in his own right, um, but they can, those books can be found there on Amazon, as well as reaching out directly through my website and on social media. Nice. And we'll put all of that in the show notes for this episode, listeners. So feel free to pop over to gothicpodcast.com and take a look at the show notes so that you can find The Plague Confessor by Meg Smith and follow her on her various social media. Sure. I, I, would, uh, I would love to uh, meet everyone in my travels and, uh, and look forward to c- continuing many conversations that way. Well, thank you for uh, joining us here by the fire tonight, uh, Meg. And thank you all for joining us in the shadows, Sojourners. We're going to take a break over the holidays, but we do have a holiday horror special planned for you in mid-December. Plus, you can head over to our Patreon and become a patron of the show in order to listen to our Session Zero one-shot for Season 2 as well as enjoy the adventures of young Dr. Grace, LJ, and Haven in the spooky town of Blank, Montana. Or, you know, if you just feel like supporting us because you like to listen. We'll be returning to our regular every other Thursday schedule the first week of January for a new season of gothic horror and fun. Until then, stay safe in the firelight. And thanks again, Meg, for joining us here on the Gothic Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and delightful And I must say, uh, uh, having a horror holiday feature sounds perfect. Uh, There's something about the holiday season and horrors that just seems to go together (laughs) so well. Perfect for the season. 